everyone. Um, thanks for joining us. Uh, so my name is Maggie Mullen. I am a licensed clinical social worker uh, in the state of California. I work in Richmond, California, so Bay Area. Um, and I'm also the author of a DBT skills workbook for psychosis. So I am really excited to have everyone joining me today to be talking about one of my favorite topics, which is uh, dialectical behavior therapy. Um, and specifically today, we're gonna be talking about practical applications of DBT. And so one other note, uh, my pronouns are they, them. Okay, here we go. All right, so what we're gonna be covering today and tomorrow are going to be first day one today overview of DBT and its research. We're gonna do that relatively briefly. I know a lot of times when people come into trainings, they're like, I'm already bought and sold, I'm down to do DBT. So we're gonna just spend some time on this. And then we're also gonna be really covering the principles and primary strategies of DBT today. And then tomorrow we're gonna to be focused on the four skills modules of DBT and then we'll wrap things up. Great, so let's just start by defining what DBT means because frankly, it's a very fancy name for a treatment. So um, dialectical means a synthesis or integration of opposites. So the primary but dialectic or thing that we're trying to balance in DBT is these seemingly opposite strategies of acceptance and change. So for example, DBT therapists accept clients as they are um, while also acknowledging that they need to change if they want to reach their goals. And the skills in DBT that we cover are also balanced between acceptance and change strategies, which we'll review shortly in a little bit more detail. Now, behavior means that we take a behavioral approach to therapy. And what that means is that we assess situations and target behaviors that are relevant to our clients' goals in order to figure out how to solve the problems in their lives. In behaviorism, we say that every behavior has a function. So for example, we ask um, if a client is threatening suicide over and over, we ask what's the function of this um, behavior? What are they trying to get out of this specifically? And so we try to learn why it's happening, what the client gets out of it, and what in their environment is also reinforcing this behavior? What is um, causing this cycle to continue? And then the T for therapy, which since you all are therapists, I will not review. Let's talk just about development of DBT for a second. So one of my absolute favorite things about DBT is that it was developed by and someone who had the lived experience of severe emotion dysregulation problems. So in more recent years, the developer of DBT, Dr. Marsha Linehan, has spoken about her struggles with suicide, cutting, and uh, psychiatric hospitalizations publicly and shared that when she was hospitalized as a young adult, she made a pledge to God that if, she, if he helped her get out of the hell she was in at that moment, that she would devote her life to helping others get out of that same hell, which is how DBT was developed. So for me, that's a very profound thing to have a treatment that's by and for um, the same group of people who are struggling. So she developed DBT in the 1980s out of a CBT base, and she found that when she was using traditional CBT as it stood in the 1980s with clients who had these emotion regulation problems, sometimes known as borderline personality disorder, or I'll refer to it as BPD from here on, is that they, it often caused frequent ruptures in the therapeutic relationship as clients felt invalidated by, invalidated by this approach, which was really heavily focused on change, things that needed to be different or better. And so what she developed DBT to do differently is to balance both acceptance and change so that clients can feel accepted and heard for what they're experiencing, but also simultaneously being pushed to change in areas that aren't working. 
And since its development, DBT has been evaluated in many randomized control trials conducted in the US and other countries. Um, this map here shows us a little bit about where DBT exists currently. And these international RCTs found that DBT is effective when implemented in other countries and results are similar to those found in studies conducted in the US. So that's something that we like to see happen. And a little bit more of a note on research here. So to date, there have been nine of these randomized controlled trials and five controlled trials of DBT. And what they've resulted in is improvement in this whole list of uh, areas. So we'll go through this briefly together. Um, so obviously BPD, which is you know the primary function of DBT, but for people who also have co-occurring suicidal and self-harming behavior, substance use issues, PTSD, high irritability, and also seen benefits for people who are dealing with ADHD, PTSD alone, major depression, bipolar disorder, um, emotion dysregulation more generally, um, suicidal and self-harming teens or adolescents, kids who are struggling with severe emotional and behavior dysregulation, binge eating disorder, and bulimia. So those are just to name a few of the primary areas where we've seen really good research and evidence um, backing up the use of DBT. Okay, so the other piece um, is in studies for people with BPD, so borderline personality disorder, DBT outperformed control treatments in reducing um, all of these different behaviors specifically. I'm not going to go through them right now just for the sake of time, but um, a lot of things that in particular that if you are thinking about starting DBT work at your clinic are things that are really useful data to be able to present to your manager or to your team of here are the things that are going to be helpful um, or things that are going to be reduced that tend to be really costly in clinics. So the accumulating evidence indicates that DBT reduces the overall cost of treatment. So if you're thinking, so for example, the um, American Psychiatric Association did a study where they estimated that DBT decrease costs by about 56% in the community-based programs. So what they saw was decreases in face-to-face -face emergency services by about 80%, number of hospital days by about 77%, partial hospitalization stays by 76%, crisis bed days by 56%. And so overall, the decrease in these hospital costs in particular was around $26,000 per client. Um, as compared to, and excuse me, so the hospital costs would have been $26,000 for client. Um, and what they saw instead, it was that the cost savings ended up being more about $6,500 for client. So people saving about 20 grand per client. And certainly we don't necessarily want to um, use money as the ultimate measure of human suffering, but it is uh, something that is useful in terms of clinics budgets and does it is it worth the work putting in a program like this? So we see it's cost effective, which is nice. Okay, so becoming a DBT clinician means being part of a full DBT team, which includes four elements. And I'm just going to introduce these to you briefly um, about what a full DBT program looks like when it's fully adherent. And then for the rest of the time today and tomorrow, we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about DBT informed therapy, meaning being able to understand the principles and skills DBT employs that you can start using with clients right away. Um, I Part of one, the reason I want to introduce this is sometimes we use the term DBT really um, lightly versus being a really adherent treatment program. And so I want to make that distinction for you all. 
So if you're doing a fully adherent program, it includes these four elements. So individual therapy, which is, you know, focused on clients' motivation, helping them apply the skills that they learn to challenges in their specific lives. Um, and those are 60-minute meetings that happen once a week. And then you're also completing a diary card that we're going to review soon. Then we have skills group, and that also meets weekly, and clients are part of that for about six months to a year, depending on what their needs are. And that's really focused on a classroom style group where people are learning behavioral skills, so the four modules of DBT. And um, you also have homework as part of that, so it's a pretty intensive part of the program. Then we have phone coaching, which is really the idea that um, crises don't always happen in the course of our therapy sessions. So we need to find ways to help clients generalize the skills that they're learning in the moment when they're actually in crisis, um, as well as to resolve um, any issues that come up in the therapeutic relationship. So that helps us be able to be more available to our clients. And in most DBT programs, phone coaching is available 24-7. And then lastly, the therapist consultation team, which is one of the things that I think makes DBT really unique, is that it's designed um, to be a weekly meeting for the providers who are part of your DBT team. And it's specifically designed as therapy for the therapist. Um, we are working with complex, uh, very difficult to treat behaviors at times that clients are, are dealing with, and it has an emotional impact on us. And so part of the function of this team is really to provide support for one another and also to stay adherent to the treatment model. And then we do that weekly as well. So that's the overview of a full DBT program. So let's turn to the goals of DBT for a moment. So the primary goals in DBT are about helping clients build a life worth living and working on dialectical synthesis. So DBT is often called a suicide prevention program. I hear that a lot from people and we're actually not. Um, that is sometimes an outcome that we reduce suicide rates, but we can't really say that we're a suicide prevention program. Instead, we're actually focused not on just keeping clients alive, but living a miserable life. Instead, we're helping them work on a life worth living, which is the life for them that involves some reason to stay alive, right? That there's meaning and there's value in their life. And again, this is all based on their cultural viewpoint and what's important to them personally. And our job as providers is to help them get there. And then the second goal around dialectical synthesis, what that means, again, fancy term, what it means is helping your client learn to think in a more balanced way rather than going to extremes and then acting on these beliefs. So another way of putting this is as, you know, learning to walk the middle path or finding what's left out in a client's thinking. Because one of the biggest issues for people with BPD or any um, similar emotion regulation issues is that, our, that their thinking can go to an extreme place and then they act as a result of that. So we'll talk about a few examples when we go to case studies soon. Okay, so the way that we go about reaching these goals in DBT is using the following types of interventions. And today we're gonna to spend the majority of our time on the skills training portion, but I wanna introduce kind of the full picture to you first. So validation, problem solving, contingency management, which is very specific as a part of a behavioral training, observing limits. And when I say observing limits, that means um, teaching clients what their limits are and helping them say no or ways to kind of um, observe those more generally, but also for ourselves as therapists. Uh, skills training, which we're going to spend a lot of time on today, exposure-based principles, and then cognitive modification. So you see elements of a lot of different therapies that you might have heard of that are integrated in here um, that are coming from DBT. 
Okay, that's just to emphasize, we're gonna talk a lot about skills training. <laughs> okay, so the stages of treatment, there are four stages. Um, most clients, in all honesty, only go for, through the first two. Um, and frankly, those are the two, I think, most important um, stages. So the first stage here is um, stage one. And what that really focuses on is the specific behaviors that are life-threatening in somebody's life that we're working on stabilizing. And we're going to talk about a few examples in the next slide. Stage two is about for people who are experiencing co-occurring PTSD, which a lot of our clients who come to our program are, we offered what's called DBT prolonged exposure. Um, so it's a specific version of prolonged exposure therapy that works for people who are dealing with you know, complex PTSD with other co-occurring issues. And then stage three is really about living, building a life worth living. So getting them towards their goals, moving them forward. And stage four tends to look like a little bit more traditional therapy, which is reaching deeper meaning in their lives ultimately. Okay, so let's talk about stage one treatment targets. So what are we even looking at when we're working in DBT treatment or even from a DBT informed lens? So first of all, we're looking at life-threatening behaviors as the top of kind of the hierarchy of, of needs here. So those are any behaviors that could lead to a client's death or um, the death of somebody else or any injury to somebody else. So this is things that classic things like suicide attempts, self-injurious behavior, so cutting, hitting, um, punching, et cetera, burning, um, and any kind of violence towards others. So those are the top of the hierarchy, which are already the things we focus on in any form of treatment is kind of safety. The second piece, which is unique, I think, to DBT is focus on therapy interfering behaviors. So these are any behaviors um, that interfere with the client receiving effective treatment or that burn out the therapist. So for those of you, I think, who are coming to this training, you have probably worked with clients where you have felt burnt out because of maybe the complex issues that they're dealing with, certain behaviors, certain things that they say to you that make it really hard to be empathic and kind of continue to do the work. And so this is a reason that we target these behaviors because they're ones that are not only not effective in therapy, but also tend to generalize to the rest of their lives um, where they burn out their loved ones who are around them or their support network or their bridges get burned. And something to note is these are behaviors that can be performed by the client and also the therapist, right? Ther therapists are believed to be fallible in DBT, so we make mistakes. So some of the examples of therapy interfering behaviors would be things like being late to session, canceling appointments, not being honest about what's going on, uh, being non-collaborative in some way, not using phone coaching, um, you know, things that, again, that are just getting in the way of treatment. And then lastly we focus on quality of life interfering behaviors. And this is kind of the amalgamation of any other type of behavior that interferes with a client building their life worth living. So barriers for things getting better for them. Um, and these can include things such as non-life-threatening substance use, so drugs or alcohol use, or disordered eating behaviors. This could be getting into fights frequently with people or yelling at others. Um, not speaking up for yourself, so staying silent, um, self-isolating, stopping medications suddenly without a conversation first, can be anything in the spectrum. Again, I imagine that these are things that you all have run into a lot in your treatments with clients. So DBT is a principles-based treatment, not a skills-based treatment and not a rules-oriented program. And so it's really important when you think about stepping into the role of doing DBT-informed work that these are things that you are keeping in mind. And um, 
it's important to think about the approach that we take uh, in DBT as working with the client, knowing that a lot of people come to a DBT treatment or to DBT-informed therapy or even any of the clinics that you're working in, having been uh, sometimes mistreated by therapists, kicked out of programs for behaviors that are part of their mental health cycle, and so trust doesn't always come easily, as well as trauma and PTSD, of course, mixed in there. Um, and so we want people to really understand that it actually takes a lot to be kicked out of a DBT program, like kind of a lot, a lot, because we want to keep in mind that people are coming here with those problem behaviors for a reason, that that's part of the issue of what's happening for them, rather than kicking them out of a program because of those behaviors. So the assumptions we make about clients, I'll go through these um, with you all. First of all, clients are doing the best they can. Clients want to improve. Clients must learn new behaviors, both in therapy and the context of their day-to-day -day lives. And this is specifically in service to reaching their goals. That clients can't fail in DBT. Clients may not have solved all of their problems, but they have to solve them anyway. This is where the skill of radical acceptance comes in. Clients need to do better, try harder, and or be more motivated to change. So we have the other side of the dialectic here. We have some acceptance-based approaches and then some change-based approaches. And lastly, the lives of suicidal individuals are unbearable as they are currently being lived, that people are truly suffering. And to me, um, as a therapist, one of the things that I really rely on is coming back to these assumptions when I'm feeling burnt out, when I'm feeling, uh, we talk about like feeling crispy in DBT, when I'm feeling uh, frustrated with clients, when my empathy is lacking, they really help me build that empathy piece back up again to be reminded of these kind of basic universal human principles. And then the assumptions about treatment. So the most caring thing a treatment provider can do is to help their clients change in ways that bring them closer to their own ultimate goals. Clarity, precision, and compassion are of up the utmost importance. And let me explain this one. So this is the idea that as a therapist that you know why you're doing what you're doing. So for example, if we're talking about contingency management strategies, I need to know why I might be withdrawing warmth from my body language or my facial expression or my tone of voice with the client in a session, that there's a functional reason I'm doing that. It's not just about the day that I'm having. Next, the therapeutic relationship is a real relationship between equals. And one of the ways that we talk about this is that I might say to my client, I'm the expert on DBT, but you're the expert on your life. And so we're a team and what we're doing is helping you build a life worth living. So let's bring both of those um, expertise to the table to do that together. Next, um, principles of behavior are universal, affecting therapists no less than clients. Um, so one of the things that we agree to do as DBT therapists or people who are practicing any type of DBT work is we use the same skills and same principles we we preach to our clients. So, um, you know, one of the things we do a little bit of, and we'll talk more about this, is self-disclosure and DBT. So I have to have examples of when I've used the skills, if I'm going to disclose an example of how, to, how that they could use in their lives. So that means when I get frustrated, I'm working on my DBT skills. Um, and it helps me both become uh, more familiar with them, so I'm teaching them, but also I know that they work um, so that I can be able to talk to my clients about them from a more realistic viewpoint. Okay, next, so therapists need support. Again, that's the function of the consultation team I mentioned, that therapists can fail. And lastly, that DBT can fail even when therapists do not.
So again, part of the role of a consult team um, is that you are reminding and holding each other accountable to these assumptions when working with clients. And again, if you are working just as an individual therapist providing DBT-informed treatment, that means that you're going to be reminding yourself of these things, maybe on your own. So as I mentioned before, the main dialectic that we're working to find a middle path between is acceptance and change, as we can see on the scale here. And this looks like finding a balance between strategies of validation, which is more acceptance-based, and problem-solving, which is more change-based. And as far as the skills modules go, these are also divided up between these two areas. So we can see over here on the left, um, acceptance, so mindfulness and distress tolerance, those are acceptance-based skills. And on the right, emotion regulation, interpersonal effectiveness are on the change-based. Again, we're gonna talk a lot more in detail um, when we start going through the skills tomorrow. So if any of these terms are not familiar to you, don't worry about it. We're gonna go through them a lot more in detail together. Okay. So DBT looks at borderline personality disorder as a pervasive disorder of the emotion regulation system, meaning that people have difficulty knowing how to regulate and manage their own emotions. And a lot of times we take a term like BPD out um, entirely of the treatment, not because um, the, the term itself is wrong, but because of the stigma associated with it. And really we focus instead behaviorally on what's happening. So specifically we think of BPD as one symptom and that one symptom is emotion dysregulation with eight behaviors that are attached to it. So if we're looking at the DSM-5 criteria, which I have written up here and kind of divided into different areas of types of dysregulation, we can see that the behaviors clients perform that tend to burn us out most in therapy, but also are least effective in their lives, are often the result of clients working to regulate their own emotions, or they're a natural consequence of the emotion dysregulation itself. So let me give you a few examples. So clients may self-harm, so they may cut, for example, in an attempt to manage their emotions. So they're looking for a release from extreme shame or sadness or whatever emotion they're feeling. And so they cut. So that is an attempt to manage their own emotions. Alternatively, clients might, for example, lash out at their provider, lash out at you, because they're already feeling emotionally dysregulated. So we see a behavior happen as a result of the emotion dysregulation already. So we also conceptualize emotion regulation a little bit differently than other modalities do. So we talk about what's called the biosocial model of uh, emotion dysregulation. So the bio part uh, refers to biological differences. So genetics, individual variations in how reactive we are, how sensitive we are to emotions, and how impulsive we are overall. And then the social piece here refers to growing up in an invalidating environment. And this includes environments that doesn't, don't allow them to express their emotions fully or doesn't train them with how to cope with their emotions. Or this could be an environment where a client experiences frequent criticism, there's trauma, or there's abuse. And one point that I think is well worth making is that racism, as well as other forms of oppression, 
um, also create invalidating environments for people. And how this happens is that we tell people, right, as a society and also as individuals, that their voices or their lives don't matter in some way. And this happens both on a macro level, as we're, we know, um, and it can also happen, so with policies, for example, that impact BIPOC people, um, or through one-to-one -one interactions, such as microaggressions or tone policing that can happen on a daily basis. And so when these events or experiences occur, uh, people of color or people from other marginalized group are often told you're overreacting, no, that wasn't racist, or some other version of invalidation or, and as a result, understandably, when you're met with that type of invalidation, it can lead you to question yourself. Like, was that really worth having a reaction over? Was that really racist? Um, it can lead to attempts to suppress your own emotion. Like, um, I can't even deal with thinking about this. Like, I shouldn't have an emotion or I need to hide it in some way because people think of me as the angry Black person or whatever stereotype. Um, and others can lead to emotional outbursts in response to frustration that we hear this message over and over again. So there are all different roles that um, invalidating environments can be created by. So ultimately, this client's biological and social history come together to inform their capacity to regulate their own emotions. So for people that do have, um, again, this genetic predisposition to be more sensitive to emotions or invalidating environments, what we find, and I, this is worth talking about. I know we're, we're going to a lot of like theoretical stuff here for a moment. I promise we're going to get into more practical stuff in just a sec. But this really, again, helps us build the empathy and understanding for why clients are acting the way that they are. So what this looks like, um, we can see on the scale here, is that the average person is this blue line, what's called non-clinical emotion intensity, right? Their emotion pops up, it uh, plateaus for a moment, and it comes back down relatively quickly. So what we see for people who deal with emotion dysregulation problems is the red line. And that means that people start with a high sensitivity, so they're already going to have a more immediate reaction. They experience more intense emotions, so that red line pops up faster, so kind of like a zero to 60 kind of reaction. And then they plateau for longer, so that they're high peak for a longer period of time, and it takes longer for them to return to baseline than the average person. So we see these more intense, longer lasting peaks of emotion. And in order to escape this intense reaction, people engage in sometimes ineffective strategies, such as self-harm, substance use, getting into a fight, whatever. And it gives them short-term relief. So there's a reason it's happening, but the reason they tend to come to treatment with us or show up is because there's long-term consequences to this behavior that can be more of a challenge for them to deal with. So there are lots and lots of judgmental terms that are thrown out to describe people with BPD or who experience pervasive emotion dysregulation problems. So you can put a few of these in the chat if you'd like, and these might be things that you've said yourself or you've heard other providers say, or maybe even your professors in school taught you. So I'm going to put out a few examples and you guys can add more to the chat, please. So manipulative, that's one I hear very frequently. Attention seeking, help rejecting, uh, holding other people hostage. Any of those sound familiar to people? I'm going to give you a moment to, to write things in the chat. Okay, great. Get under your skin. You're never enough. Uh-huh. Needy. Yeah, that's a common one. Hostile. Mm, yes, definitely have heard those. Emotional blackmailer. Uh-huh. Good examples. Others have to walk on eggshells. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's plenty of books that are literally called Walking on Eggshells. Uh, displaced anger, not fit for therapy. Uh-huh. 
all great examples. Okay, thank you. So what we're trying to do in DBT is shift our focus to look at clients from a non-judgmental lens and maintain empathy for them. Because when I describe a client as not fit for therapy, emotional blackmailer, they're hostile, whatever version of that I say, it actually causes my emotions to rise and it makes it harder for me to work with the client instead of making it easier for me to develop empathy. So when we look at a client's behavior, one of the things I'm going to encourage you to do throughout this training, but also ongoing in your clinical world, is to ask, what's the function of this behavior? What's the reason they're doing it? What's in their environment is reinforcing it? What do they get out of it, right? Is this, like, what is, what's, what's happening in this moment? And not only does it help you target the ineffective behavior more effectively, because you actually understand the system of what's happening, but again, it also helps you maintain empathy for that client. And these behaviors are typically desperate, unskillful attempts to get their emotional needs met. Again, there's a reason that these things are happening. And so in DBT, we look at these as their deficits in the skills of emotion regulation. So they're not able to manage their emotions effectively. They have trouble tolerating distress. Um, and maybe they have really bad interpersonal effectiveness skills or really ineffective ones, I should say, um, that they are unable to communicate, say no, ask for what they needed in the most effective way. So our job as therapists is to fill in the gaps and help them become more skillful. Another thing that you may hear associated with DBT is um, we talk about clients as being ineffective manipulators. Okay, so let me explain this because it sounds like a funny thing to say. So this refers to the idea that we all do things to manipulate our environment, all, every one of us in the world. And so for example, I may compliment something that you say in a meeting um, with me and as a way to reinforce you and build our relationship. But the benefit beyond just maybe building that relationship is it also means it's probably more likely that you'll help me when I ask you for something in the future if we have that good relationship going. So what makes us quote unquote successful manipulators is that people are less aware of the actions we're taking. We're more invisible, they, come, they look more natural in our environment. So people with BPD often struggle, struggle to manipulate their environments as effectively, and they do so in a way that may seem very obviously ineffective to somebody on the outside. So for example, threatening to harm themselves if someone doesn't do what they're asking for. So our job, in, again, in DBT is to help them become more effective manipulators of their environment. All right, so we're gonna talk about therapeutic style for a second. Um, if you have ever seen or heard a DBT therapist in action, you might be a little taken aback by the way we communicate with our clients. Um, I'm gonna show a video in a few minutes of um, somebody doing this, but let's talk about what it looks like first and then we'll show an example. So um, we use something called irreverent communication to get the client's attention to shift their affective response and or to get them to see things from a completely different point of view. So what that means is that typically we're responding in an unorthodox manner where we use humor, uh, where a more serious response is expected, or a serious response when the client didn't take the situation seriously. So let me give you an example. This is from a colleague of mine, Gary, who I really respect. Um, so he had a client who said to him, um, that she would cut herself if he didn't answer the phone the moment she called him. Because there were times where maybe he was with his kids or doing something else, he couldn't answer right away. And so what he said back to her was, but what if I have diarrhea? What am I gonna do then? Are you gonna cut yourself then? And it, it sounds like a funny kind of response on face value, but the idea is to throw somebody off 
of the way that they would normally expect a response to come from somebody. They don't typically get hear that from a therapist. So it shifts the conversation from, an un, from a predictable pattern to a different way of looking at things and also infuses a little bit of humor. Um, another example would be if a client storms out of session saying, I'm gonna kill myself. You could respond by saying, I thought you agreed not to drop out of treatment. So again, we're throwing off the conversation with where a client maybe expects a really serious response with some humor. And again, we can't do this in the first session, right? Obviously, we have to have a relationship built. Um, and we'll talk more about how we do that. But these are some examples of what irreverent communication might look like. So next, we use self-disclosure. And what that means is that we often share examples of how we use skills in our own lives. And how much we shared is, of course, based on our personal limits, as always. So, for example, I might describe how I use the skill of urge surfing from DBT to avoid uh, flicking off the driver who cut me off in traffic the other day. And the reason that we use self-disclosure beyond just building the relationship is that clients tend to be more engaged when we share about ourselves. Like their little ears often perk up if it's a group or an individual session when we talk about ourselves because they want to know more. We also use, I think goes hand in hand with self-disclosure, we use um, what's called a radical uh, or being radically genuine with clients to communicate our care and real relationship with them. So for example, I might say to a client, when you do that, it really makes me mad at you and I don't wanna be mad at you. Um, so this is really in contrast to a lot of therapeutic styles that will be kind of um, like the blank slate kind of approach. Like we bring ourselves into therapy in a very real way in DBT. Um, I've used this one very commonly and we use this across DBT. It, in, it includes some curse words, but it's a, it's a way of being radically genuine here. Um, but so when a client becomes, comes in discussing their suicide plan and is very serious about it, one of the things I might tell them beyond, you know, doing a, a suicide assessment and whatnot with them as well would be you killing yourself would really fuck me up. So I'm drawing on that relationship I have with them to say like, you doing this action has an impact on me and our relationship and I really care about you. So we use warm engagement and we're responsive to our clients, specifically to what our clients are saying with interest and concern. So if a client gives me a recommendation for something, you better believe I'm writing it down on a piece of paper. Even if I decide to never use it, I wanna show them that I care and that this is part of the conversation. So these strategies work together to reduce both the perceived power differential between the therapist and client, um, but they also communicate trust and respect for our client and deepen the attachment and intimacy of the relationship. Okay, people are saying they totally agree and love the self-disclosure. Yeah, and again, this is uncomfortable for a lot of people who have been trained maybe more psychodynamically or a different orientation initially where um, maybe we don't share about ourselves. So it's a bit of a shift. So let's talk about validation for a moment before we go to seeing somebody in action doing DBT. So we talk about validation. You've heard about validation. You're a therapist. That was probably like 101 when you got any training, right? Um, but DBT imagines validation slightly differently. So the reason that we talk about um, validation um, is because, again, that idea of we need to validate before we can ask for change or problem solving from a client. They need to be able to feel heard and seen before we move meaning they make some sense in some way. So they are or were survival strategies and come from a place of maybe trauma, invalidation, some of those areas we mentioned previously. So there's a reason they're reacting the way they are. And reminding yourself of this, again, good for building empathy. So all emotions are valid. 
but they're not all justified, meaning that they don't necessarily match the facts of the current situation they're in. So we will work on that tomorrow a little bit more in detail. I just want to mention that for now. Um, but before we can, again, work on managing emotions that are unjustified, they have to be validated first. So validation, again, simply is acknowledging causes of emotions, thoughts, and behaviors, um, and communicates to the client that their responses make sense. So we conceptualize this as having six different levels of validation in DBT. I'm going to run through these just to give you an idea. So the first is staying awake, right? Therapy 101, <laughs> sometimes harder during work from home times, right? Um, but we're really trying to focus on just being present for our client. The second is accurate reflection. So that's the, the verbal communication piece, being able to reflect back what they're saying to us. Level three is articulating um, the nonverbals that clients give to us. So unverbalized emotions, thoughts, or behavior patterns. Four is about validation in terms of past learning or biological dysfunction. So you're normalizing the historical context. So based on your history, of course you would feel this way right now. Level five is validation in terms of present context. Um, of course you got upset about that. It's super frustrating and no wonder you wanted to punch them. It doesn't mean I endorse you punching them, but I can totally understand how you'd feel that way. And then level six is radical genuineness. Again, that's the self-disclosure part where you're communicating specifically equality and mutual, mutual respect. And that's where I use something from my perspective. So if I were in your shoes, I'd probably feel the same way. I'd feel really frustrated as well. So what we're going to do next um, is we're going to turn to an um, example. What you're going to be watching is uh, a clinician, uh, <laughs> Dr. Alan Frazetti, um, who is an expert DBT clinician, and he's going to be conducting an individual DBT session. This person is not a client, so don't worry about confidentiality. She is, I believe, a student of his or a, um, somebody in his clinic. And what you're going to be seeing um, is him basically starting the session by reviewing her diary card, which uh, just for shorthand, it's basically like a journal where a client tracks their behaviors and use of skills. And Alice, this client, is specifically using her diary card to monitor her target behaviors, which are suicidal thoughts, urges, self-harm, and restricted eating. Again, her target behaviors. And she's also tracking how her sleep and her relationships are going. So let's take a look at this. And what I'm going to be asking you to do afterward is we're going to reflect together on where did we see strategies of validation, and then also the strategies we talked about just now around therapeutic style of irreverent communication, self-disclosure, genuineness, warm engagement and responsiveness. Where did you see those happening? So you might want to take a few notes or just um, remember in your mind some of those areas. So come on. Hi, Alice. Hi. You okay? No, you look terrible. Thanks. <laughs> Well, okay, look, can I say that differently? I think I stepped on your toe. You look like you feel terrible. I is that better? Yeah, okay. That was really mean. Oh, sorry. Did that come out as mean? That's what I say to my wife. She doesn't take it the same way. Um, no, I meant actually just that you look like you feel terrible. I was a little too abrupt there, wasn't I? All right, let's take a look at what's going on. Um, oh, my goodness, look what's going on here. Oh, what a week you've had. Wow. So you hurt yourself last week uh, on Friday. <sighs> okay, right. Are you having trouble even focusing right now? 
Yeah. Look, yeah. look at your urges to quit therapy. Yeah, there we are. You want... You. I want to? Okay. Okay, look at me. Come on. Come on, kiddo. Where'd you get that? Okay, your suicidal urges are high. Your urges to use drugs are high. Your misery is a 9 out of 10. And somehow you think I want to quit therapy. Not somehow. It's because I cut myself on Friday, like yeah. you said. Yeah. Okay, look at me. Look at my reaction. I'll do a little replay. Okay, watch my face. You said, oh boy, this is oh, something. Oh, looks like a terrible week for you. You look terrible. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'll let that one go. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, watch my face when I notice that you cut yourself on Friday. Okay, watch my face. You've got to watch my face because you've got a different idea in your head about me than Yeah, it's based on history. Whose history? My history. Okay, that's why I know. Right, but I'm. But you don't. Have, we don't have so much history. No, we so, don't. So you We're pay, just starting. All right. So I want to point out what you're doing right now. Is you are paying attention to what's in your head, in not what's history. not what's right here. No, what's right here. Well, that your history. You brought it with you, right? Could it happen? Yeah, but it's not happening. What if it's not happening right now? <laughs> what if it's not? Could you be open to that? Being open. To the chance of it not happening means yeah. that I'm opening to myself to the chance of it happening. No, you've already again. decided it's happened. Sounds like you've already got plenty of suffering as though that happened. Yeah, I got shitloads. So of can suffering. you just be open to the other possibility? Try it. Look at me. <laughs> Seriously, come on. Am I growing tumors or something? What's the story here? Okay. Okay. I'm looking. I say, oh my gosh, you had a terrible week. You know, you're suicidal. Well, you got to keep looking. I know it's hard. <laughs> You gotta look at me because you're worried about me firing you. No, how terrible I am. How terrible? You mean you're judging yourself right now? No, you're judging how I terrible am? I am. You're okay. gonna find that out. Just I gotta like say, all of the other This is hard. You're making me hot. Okay, look, here's the thing. I, here's what I don't want to do. What? Okay? I don't want you to get stuck on something that's not valid in the present moment. Do you think having five therapists in a row fire you isn't valid? That's valid, but this one's not yet firing you. That's okay? That's what they said to me. Yeah, I know. And what happened? Okay, so tell me. Maybe we didn't explore this enough. I thought we talked about this quite a bit a Which couple one? weeks ago. Which one? Well, the most recent one. About what, remember, we talked about this, right? We went over each one of these, okay? Each one. Okay. And we talked about our plan for how to handle those situations. Well, it's hard to remember. You talk so much. I do. <laughs> that is true. But we made, we made some arrangements. We made kind of some deals about how we were going to handle these situations. I didn't call you for coaching because I was... I knew I was going to cut well, myself. Hang, hang on, but, but that you, you don't get fired for not calling for coaching. You don't get fired for that. Well, I didn't do what we agreed on. Yeah, but, but I, never, I was very clear with you that you don't get fired for having the problems that bring you into therapy. Yeah, well, that's what my last therapist said, too. So you guys read the same book. Maybe. 
Okay. Look, but here's what I'm trying to get at. Right? You're kind of stuck on that right now, and that's keeping us from working on what's actually going on in your life. That is true. I'll okay? give you that. Yeah. So if you're, I, I guess I would say if you give me 30 seconds of your actual attention, <laughs> we might move past that. Okay, I can do that. All right. I can give you 30 seconds. That's all I'm asking for I right now. I can do that. Oh, okay. So 30 seconds. I'm not firing you. Will you write it down? Yeah, sure. Right now? Yeah, in fact, I'll even send you a mail, an email. Want me to text you? No, I want you to write it down on my diary okay. card, please. Yeah, sure. Oh, I just threw away my pen. My pen was hot, too. You dropped it on the floor. I dropped it on the floor. Oh. <laughs> Okay. I'm not going to write it on this one because I'm going to keep this one. I'm going to write it on your next one, okay? Please. Do you want me to sign it? Okay. I won't fire you. Can you write Dear Alice? <laughs> I'm serious. I, I did. Thank you. Can I just write Alan? No. Alan E. Frizzetti seems a little formal. Dr. Frizzetti. Dr. <laughs> Oi. Okay, Dr. Alan E. Frizzetti, the whole thing. Can you read that? Yeah. Okay, you're the only one who can. But then, that's good. All right, will that help? I think that's fantastic, actually, if that'll help. Now, does that make a difference? Yeah, because I can hold on to Yeah, but I mean, right this moment, does that make a difference? That's pretty good. Okay, so you really, you really got stuck on this, huh? You really, I, you I get me? it. I blame you for what? For having this this horrible set of experiences that makes you worried about this? No. That I mean, completely makes sense to me why you would be so scared of this. Completely makes sense. But what I want your job in this, okay? I've got a job in this and you've got a job in this, okay? Okay. okay look over here. It hurts. I know, but look over here even though it hurts. One, two. Yeah. You, you notice when you look over here, you're feeling really ashamed right now, right? But if you look at me, the shame will go down. It, <laughs> you got to keep looking at me though, because you've got to you've got to look at me and see that I'm actually not not being critical of you. I'm not sure I 100% understand, but I think I got 95% of it. And if I don't, you'll tell me, okay? I can do that. Okay. I can. Do but that. I want you to notice if you just look at me and look at my reaction to my real my reaction, not the other five therapists, you'll have a different experience. Okay. And your shame will go down right here. Okay? We'll see. Okay. Now, what I want to do um, is I want to I record the rest of our session now. Remember we talked about this? I just forgot to turn it on. Um, because I want you to be able to listen to this later. Okay? Because I think that you're so upset right now that some of this is just not going to remember. Right? It's going to be well, hard to remember. Yes. Understandably. Yes. That's what happens to everybody. Yes. Okay? Well, that's and I want you to be able to hear me say, Alice... I like you. I'm not firing you. You haven't done anything that I would fire you for. Cutting myself? You, don't, you know the... No, I want you to be mindful of what we talked about about that. You know. Do you get fired for cutting yourself? I have In this therapy, from me, do you get fired for cutting yourself? No, and if I no. kill myself, then I'm firing you. That's right. <laughs> and that's not fair. I promised I would not kill myself for the year. You gotta promise you won't kill yourself for the year. Okay, good deal then. We're even. Uh, but I can't control my thoughts. No. They okay. Well, let's work on that. So right now, look at you. You got pretty high urges right now. They're not all the way to ten. You're at six, right? Yeah. 
So the question is this. Um, I mean, like, are you gonna, is there any chance at a sixth, I, you know, we just don't know each other that well, that you will bolt out of the session and go kill yourself? Because if that's the situation, then I'm going to get really anxious no, and go sit in front of the door. Hospital. No, I'm going to go sit in front of the door. <laughs> no. Okay, good. Because I don't like being anxious about, like, you leaving in the middle of a conversation. Yeah, and if you did that to me, I'd be pissed off. Yeah, if I got up and left in the middle of a conversation, yeah. Well, I'm going to pay you. I wouldn't expect you to. Okay, so so let's chat about this for a moment. Okay, so where did you see some of these things? Um, so again, irreverent communication, validation, radical genuineness. Where did you see this happening during um, Dr. Frazetti talking to this client? And I'll just have you put it in the chat. Okay, so he validated her when she was concerned with him firing her, and he went as far as writing down the statement she requested. Yeah, totally validated what a week you had <laughs> yeah you could see he had made that initial misstep of saying you look terrible right which is one strategy we actually might use um in using radical genuineness or irreverence but he also had the ability to draw on the the relationship they had when she got upset about what he said um irreverent communication when he said he'd sit in front of the door if she tried to run out and kill herself yeah i'm getting warm yeah i'm getting hot yeah taking off his jacket when she was getting upset, irreverent communication, I agreed not to kill myself this year and you wouldn't kill yourself this year. Lots of humor. Yeah. Warm engagement, kept making jokes about serious topics like suicide. Yeah. And it's not to say when we use any of these strategies that we don't take somebody's risk factor seriously. Like that is still absolutely an important component of this work we're doing with people who are um, or who do have very high rates of suicide. Um, however, we also want to be able to talk about it in a way that doesn't feel quite so serious when it's used. He validates that he's talking too much. Yeah, great examples, everyone. Okay, good. So let's move on um, to talking about some of some more of the strategies. So we're going to be talking next using a, about a behavior chain analysis. So this is the first tool that you can really take from our, this presentation to start using right away with clients. So behavior chain, we're going to use an example in just a second, but let me introduce the idea of it. So a behavior chain analysis, also known as behavior chain, examines the events and situational factors that lead up to or follow a problematic behavior. So the problem behavior is anything you're working on. It could be self-harm, suicide attempt, anger outburst, purging, whatever. And once clients learn to use the behavior chain in session with you, they can actually utilize it on their own because we want them to become their own DBT therapists over time. So behavior chains are often used to look at problem behaviors, but they can also be a way to celebrate when a client is skillful, to look at something that they did really effectively and really go through it step by step. So let's do this using an example to start. Um, so let me turn to our client. Uh, so her name is Jimena. Uh, she uses she, her pronouns, and she is a 35-year-old pansexual Latinx cisgender woman. And she lives in a multi-generational household in Southern California and is diagnosed with bipolar one disorder with a history of multiple hospitalizations for manic episodes and suicide attempts. So she regularly self-harms in the form of cutting her legs and punching herself. She currently works full-time as a library assistant. Um, um, he, she works full-time as a library assistant at the local library. 
and she has a support from her parents and grandparents, but they're feeling burned out with her due to how often she picks fights with them and then threatens to harm herself. She currently has a partner and their relationship is pretty up and down. So that's who we're going to be examining um, in this behavior chain. So let's turn, so she comes to session the next time with you and she shares that um, recently she got into a screaming fight with her partner one afternoon. She left her partner's house and immediately got into her car and self-harmed, and we'll say in the form of cutting. She, you ask her a few questions about what preceded the fight, and she shares that she hadn't eaten all day, and she'd slept poorly the night before. Okay, so let's look at Jimena's um, situation using a behavior chain analysis. Okay, so... This, uh, I often do behavior chains written on a piece of paper right now with um, shelter in place. I'm actually doing them like a Word document that I screen share on a session. But this is kind of the original format, but you can make of it what you want um, and kind of make it your own. So we look first all the way on the far side of this chain to look at the vulnerability factors. And what that means are the things that make her more likely to feel intense emotions. So things like poor sleep, not enough food, physical pain, stressors, uh, being on her period, whatever are the things that tend to make us feel more emotional. So in Hamina's case, she had shared with us that she hadn't had enough food and then she also slept poorly the night before. So before we even get into the situation, we want to name like what, what are the background factors that might have made her be less effective in her communication. Then we look next at the prompting event. What's the thing that kind of triggered all the, the chain of events to start? And in this case, it was that her partner um, was invalidating to her in some way, um, particularly about her appearance after she dressed up nicely that day. So we look at next, what were the thoughts that ran through her mind? And Jimena's case, some of the examples we thought that came up were things like, you don't care about me, no one cares about me. Then we look next at emotions. So what came next? She felt shame initially, and then she noticed anger coming up. And the physical sensations that also came along with this, right, might have been things like uh, muscle tension or agitation. Um, and particularly for clients of color, it's common for people to describe their mental health symptoms in terms of physical ailments. So this is an area that you might want to spend more time on depending on the client you're working it with. And then lastly, we're looking at the other thoughts that might pop up, as well as the behaviors that happen. So she had some thoughts around the area of like, screw you and everyone else too. And then the behaviors were then she screamed at her partner, left the house, and then left for her car. And then when she got in her car, she self-harmed. So that's the target that we're looking at. And we also want to look then further to see what were the consequences of the problem behavior, right? And the reason we look at these is because it gives her a reason to figure out, like, why is there a problem associated with self-harm? Because a lot of clients use it and find it very effective and don't often want to give it up. So we want to see, like, what are the consequences that happen for Jimena? So, for example, thoughts, um, she might have immediate relief from emotional pain. So we want to name that. But then she also may have thoughts at the same time that come on, like, I did it again, like, I shouldn't have done that. And then we might notice emotions, for example, like shame or even guilt that are rising for having engaged in a behavior that maybe she wishes she weren't engaging in. And then after this, 
you know, it's common for clients, for example, to isolate themselves. It doesn't, you know, maybe she doesn't answer the phone or come into therapy sessions for the next couple of days because of the intense kind of cycle of emotions that comes up. Again, I'm using some more general examples here in this case example, but there's other things that you might see in your own client examples. Okay, so what we look at next then is thinking through what could, after we've looked at everything, what could be happening that could be different that led to a different outcome for Jimena than self-harming? Because especially in DBT, we are trying to move her away from a behavior like this that comes with a lot of consequences that actually lead to her feeling even worse at the end of the day, even though she gets that immediate re relief from that intense emotional cycle. So we look back in this chain, particularly uh, what we call up chain, so above the part where she self-harmed to figure out what could have gone differently and what way she could have been more skillful. And we're really not doing this to shame the client. We're sort of just pointing this out as like, this is a pattern of behavior that's frequent. Let's think about how we can make this go differently in the future by examining what did happen. And we always start by asking the client, like, what did you already do to try to avoid cutting? Right? Is there something that you tried to do to be skillful? And maybe Hamena might share with us something like, um, you know, I took a shot of vodka before I got in the car to try to help me calm down. And then the next question we ask is, was that effective? Um, and that's for her to decide, right? Did it actually end up reducing her urges? Did it make it easier for her? And this again tries to highlight her attempt to help herself while also pointing out that it maybe wasn't so effective in preventing the problem behavior from happening. Okay, so what we're gonna be doing next is finding places, um, and I want you to fill in in the chat box any examples you have of places we could have seen her intervene differently. So I'm going to give some examples so that you all got, you all understand what I'm talking about. And we'll add in, and you can add in more to the blanks. Okay, so I'm going to add in purple here. These are different areas for intervention in the future. So first of all, she could um, reschedule with her partner when she slept poorly because she knows she's more likely to fight with them. You know, if we already know she hasn't slept the night before. And so knowing she's going to be more vulnerable, maybe that's a time that they reschedule together. The other option could be that she could share with her partner ahead of time so that she could manage accordingly um, so that her partner could say, okay, I have to, you know, I know that Hamida hasn't slept well, she's a little bit more vulnerable. I'm going to take some steps to try and like just be a little easier on her and not bring up, you know, any issues today, for example. The other thing is if she hasn't eaten, we want to make sure she's eating something, right? Because we know that not eating affects somebody's mood and the vulnerabilities overall. A few other examples. She could do something like um, respond to her partner differently when they are when he when she's invalidating toward her. She could step outside to do some self-soothing. She could take a walk or use other distress tolerance skills that we're going to cover a little more tomorrow when she notices her initial thoughts arise in response to that perceived invalidation from her partner. She could also work on validating her own emotions. And what that means is really being able to say to yourself, like, I am feeling so angry right now. And really just putting words on your emotion. Because one of the cool things about self-validation is when we name what we're experiencing, it actually tends to bring down the intensity of that emotion. So for example, if you're feeling like a nine out of 10 intensity of um, anger, when you're able to say to yourself, like, wow, I am so pissed off right now often it has the ability to bring you down to a nine or even, or excuse me, down to an eight or maybe a step lower. So she could work on self-validating her emotions. She could remind herself of people who do care about her or challenge her own thoughts around this subject. 
She could also call for help, right? She has access to her therapist, a crisis line, maybe a family or a friend um, to help her maybe once she's already stormed out of the house and she um, is about to hop in that car and self-harm. So we have a number of options of things that Jimena could do. So I'm going to have you all add to the chat right now. What are other things that you can imagine her doing that could help us, could help Jimena be more skillful in the future to avoid engaging in that self-harm? Utilize social support. Great. So maybe talking to a family or a friend or a loved one. DBT coaching. Yeah, she could call me for coaching or whoever her therapist is. Um, reach out to THP. I'm assuming that's therapist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, challenge the negative thoughts to, and to provide, oh, excuse me, challenging the negative thoughts she's experiencing to provide reality testing, journaling her feelings, telling her partner she needs a break from the conversation, all great options, love all of these. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so we're gonna be doing another behavior chain tomorrow after you have learned um, a, a decent spectrum of DBT skills, because it'll give you the ability then to use really specific interventions to add to this. But what you've come up with already is fantastic. So that's the behavior chain. So if you have a client session today, you can use it today if you want to. Nothing fancy about it. So the next area in DBT is a diary card. And some of you may be familiar with this or heard of it before, but the idea with the diary card is really a tool to help track behaviors and particularly behaviors that our client is trying to decrease as well as skills or areas they're trying to increase. So we use this at the beginning of every session in therapy with somebody in DBT and you can use it as you need to since you're doing more DBT informed work but you have them fill out in a box um, where they rate their current levels of urges. They have to quit therapy to self-harm and regulate their own emotions. As soon as somebody walks in the session, they fill out that portion of the diary card. And part of what I personally really like about this is it gives us the opportunity to talk about what may be need to done, excuse me, what may need to be done in that moment to bring those urges down or to manage any issues coming up in our therapeutic relationship in that moment, rather than waiting for that moment that maybe at the very end of session, um, a client makes, you know, sometimes they refer to it as a doorknob comment where, so they're heading out the door and they're like, oh, I'm still feeling suicidal, by the way, or I'm so pissed at you, by the way, or whatever. We wanna know that from the start of a session. So let me give you an example of what a diary card can look like using Jimena as an example. Okay, pull this over here to the side. Okay, so this is a, a front and back page. And the area that I was just talking about with the box that you might be filling in is this area down in the lower right corner where it talks about urges to quit therapy, use drugs or alcohol, die by suicide, um, and ability to manage or regulate their own emotions. So that bottom right corner, that's what you're filling out as soon as somebody comes into the session. So let's think about Jimena for a second. So the first three boxes on the top left area where it says highest urge to is unique to the client you're working with. So these are anything related to life-threatening behaviors or behaviors that significantly interfere with her life. So in this case, I would put in something like suicide attempts. I would put in self-harm behaviors. And then I would put in maybe starting fights. And that one would be kind of up to Jimena of what she wants to target. And what somebody is doing with a diary card, and let me see if I can pull up a arrow tool so we can see this. Hopefully you can see my arrow now, is they're filling out for every day of the week, what were their urges to do any of these behaviors? 
And also, yes or no, did they engage in those behaviors? And this gives us an idea of what's happening throughout the course of the week. And one of the really interesting things about tracking behaviors is that clients tend to make changes to their behavior the more awareness they have of them, right? So the one of the main areas of DBT is mindfulness, and that is just knowing what's happening, being able to examine the facts and for what they are. And so when somebody starts to track their behaviors, they develop more awareness, which then translates into more ability to make a change in their life in terms of their behavior. So then over to the right, we track also other areas like emotional misery, physical misery, and joy. Again, scale of zero to five. We might track, again, depending on the client, are they taking their meds as prescribed? Are they taking PRN meds? And again, this gives us an idea of if there's a day where they're in really high emotional misery and really high physical misery, um, that they might have stronger urges in some of these areas over here. And so if we see a client who doesn't act on a behavior, right? For example, if they have a really crappy day, really high emotional misery, really high physical misery, um, self-harm urges are really strong and they come into session. I see all those numbers are like fives, but they haven't engaged in that behavior. That's an opportunity for me to celebrate with them, to be like, what did you do that had you not act on that behavior of harming yourself? Because I could see why you would really want to, given how crappy your day was that day. Okay. Then we move over here to the right where we see actions. And this is, did they call us, um, for coaching? Did they do their homework and did they use skills? And then lastly, this is where we add in more quality of life related behavior. So in Jimena's case, I'll make up some examples. So that might be she wants to spend more time with her family, like quality time. And maybe she wants to smoke marijuana yet less. Oh, I don't. <laughs> Can you see that this, uh, I, instead of saying marijuana, it says marijuana, Jimena. I don't know what happened there. Sorry. <laughs> it's very odd. Anyway, that's supposed to say marijuana use. Okay. So then the back side of the diary card looks like this. And this is the area, again, we're going to really jump into in detail tomorrow. And this is a list of the majority, though, of course, not all of the DBT skills that we teach a client in group. There are more examples to this, but these, this is the highlights, I would say. And what a client is doing is based on which skills you've taught them, they've learned in group, or, you know, they've been educated on in some way, maybe individual session, if, for example, you're working with them one-on-one -on -one only is then they are tracking when they're using these skills. So where are the situations that they're using these? They might also notice, like when you look at a diary card, they're not using a skill that you've taught them. And that's just an opportunity to say, are you not using it because it doesn't make sense? Or are you not using because it it's not effective? And you might do some problem solving around that because part of the reason we offer so many skills to clients, and this is true of any treatment, right? We want to give them a ton of tools in their toolkit is because some are not going to work as well for people. Um, and again, some of that's based on cultural differences, individual differences. Sometimes it's just based on in that moment, that one didn't work and you wanna give them opportunity to have other options. And somebody's asking, is there downloadable PDF diary card available? Yes. So um, there is something called the uh, DBT Wiki um, that's online through the Practice Ground website. So um, on the last slide for tomorrow, I'm going to give you some resources. That's a great place to get different versions of diary cards that you can use. So this is the one that I've designed with my team. Ours looks a little different than everyone else's because we all have kind of unique versions just based on the formatting that we like, but there are a lot of different versions that are available on the DBT Wiki. Okay. 
All right, so I want to take a moment. I've been talking a lot to you all, and I want to give you all the opportunity to ask questions. So let's take a moment, and I'm going to turn off my screen share so I can see some of your beautiful faces. And what I'm going to have you do is just write in any questions you have in the chat box or comments so we can talk about it a little bit together. Okay. Is the idea that the client carries the diary card around with them and fills it out throughout the week? Great question, Katie. It depends. So every client is really different. So I have some clients for whom they like a digital version. There are digital versions online through different DBT apps that you could use, for example, and they'll fill it out on their phone because that's just the easiest way for them. I have a lot of clients who set an alarm and they do it at the same time every day. It's kind of their opportunity to maybe in the morning or at the end of the day to have kind of a mindful moment and reflect on what's happened that day or maybe the day before. I have some clients for whom they're like, I just have a physical copy that I keep in my wallet or my purse and it's an easy way for me to fill it out but everyone's different. And so the thing that I try to discourage clients um, most around is waiting to the end of the week to fill it out because there's no way you can remember what happened all week, right? I can hardly remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday, let alone how I was feeling throughout the course of seven days. So whatever version, and we spend a decent amount of time problem solving this on DBT, but we try to figure out what's going to work best for the client that's also most effective for them. So it depends. Okay. How soon can you implement using a diary card with a client? right away. So I would say, you know, in formalized DBT, again, we're talking about DBT informed treatment here. It is part of session two's orientation to start using it. I tend to break it up in two sessions, partly because the diary card's long and some clients need some time to adjust to like learning this new format, trying to track behaviors, some of the emotional responses that can come up from looking and examining your own behaviors, which can be tough for some people. So I would say you can use it as soon as you start using it or start um, teaching a client about that and designing it together. So make it kind of a project that the two of you are doing. Okay, um, what DBT diary card apps do your clients like? Um, it depends. There actually are a couple of them online. There's one, I think it's called DBT coach, which I think people use more frequently. Um, now in the age, honestly, of digital um, everything like teletherapy clients sometimes actually just like for me to email them a version and then they keep it on their phone rather than using the app because the apps are harder to customize. So if anyone wants to create a DBT app and has those skills, please do. I'd love to contribute to what, what those actually look like, but there's some limitations with the apps. Okay. Um, I find it difficult to move people from validation to skills and I feel like they already know or it won't work quick enough and they get frustrated. Oh, yes, this is really common. Okay, I'm gonna give you a quick answer knowing we're gonna spend more time on this tomorrow. So one of the, well, let me see. There's, it seems like there's two questions in here, right? One is how do you move from validation to problem solving, kind of acceptance to change? And then the second question is how to get people on board for the idea of doing it. So the first thing is I'm really transparent with my clients, right? I tell them from the start, that we are, I am always going to be there for them, how they're feeling in the moment and make a point of being validating. But I also point out to them that like, you came to treatment, not just to be validated. You could get that from somebody else in your life. Like you came to treatment also to make changes in the way that you're doing things. And so my job is to help move you in that direction. So I tell them that really explicitly and they learn it. Um, and to be totally honest, DBT isn't for everyone. Like that's part of the reason why um, we have conversations at the beginning of treatment to be like, here are the ways that it's going to be different. Here are the ways I'm going to talk to you that are going to be different than old therapists, um, right? I'm going to talk to you about my bowel movements, right? As one example, um, not everyone does that, of course, but like with that example of radical genuineness, right? I tell people from the start, here's what to expect from me. 
so that they have a little bit of buy-in and know that I'm going to be doing that because I care about them and want to move them towards their goals, not because I want to be one more invalidating person. And I have to remind people of that really frequently throughout therapy, honestly, because when you have a history of invalidation, whatever form that takes, it's hard to not have it feel like me just steamrolling them. So the second part of that question, I think, was how to get buy-in for doing something different. And so just to comment on what we've talked about so far today. So one thing I think that's useful is that um, the behavior chain, right? So we're being able to point out to a client the consequences of a behavior, but having them choose for themselves whether this is effective or not, right? Things that are life-threatening are areas we're not budging on necessarily, but there might be other things like starting fights with people, for example, um, that are like more like verbal altercations rather than physical. We might do something like a pros and cons chart. We're gonna go through that more in detail tomorrow to think about not just what are the short-term benefits or downsides of doing a behavior, but also what are the long-term consequences? What does it cost you to get into frequent fights with people? What's the impact on your relationships or your um, feeling of the life worth living that you're looking for? And really I frame a lot of things in the sense of like, what's your life worth living look like and what fits into that getting there now? What are the steps you need to take? The other piece is that we also have a set of skills um, that we're gonna talk again about tomorrow, which are called the tip skills. And I love the tip skills. They're like my number one favorite skill in DBT if I had to choose one, um, because they are changes that work on a physiological level where people get quick results. And when people are able to get that quick result in a similar way to like, let's say cutting, for example, or um, kind of some kind of self-harm, then they get more buy-in to know that they work. So I use a lot of clients in session with people to really have them understand that they're going to be useful, as well as like if they're in a DBT group, they do a lot of that practice in session. So I would say the other way we get buy-in is just by doing it with people to be like, let's do it together in session. It may seem weird, but, and sometimes we'll even work to get somebody a little bit dysregulated so that they can be in a state of mind where we can see that shift happen in a session. Okay. Let me go to a different question here. Can you change the format of the diary card to specify each client's behavior? Absolutely. Yes, you should customize it for each client you're working with. Make it work for them. And what if clients are ambivalent towards diary cards? How can we motivate them to consistently fill them out? Yeah, this is a big issue. Clients get sick of them, honestly. I mean, that's the biggest thing is they get tired of them. And I commiserate with them about it all the time. That's a big thing. Um, so for example, I just had an orientation session with a client yesterday where I was like, don't worry, you're going to hate these soon <laughs> and we'll work through it together. We're going to find a way to keep, make it useful to you. Um, so what are ways that we motivate them? I mean, I think there's a couple different ways. So DBT again is a behavioral therapy. And what that means is we draw on ways to reinforce clients behavior through natural consequences. So Rather than punishing a client for not doing a diary card, we work on ways to build in like the likelihood that they're going to do it. So that might be things like, I find specific reinforcers to a client by being like, what makes you more likely to do a behavior? So I might say, if I brought in a piece of chocolate for you each time you did it, would that make it more likely? If I praised you, would that make it more likely you would do it? If I spent the last five minutes of session talking about um, how much we both love our cats, could, would that be reinforcing? I find some way to make it a reinforcer that either I'm providing or they can provide to themselves to increase the likelihood of that behavior happening, whether it's diary cards or something totally different. Um, and the thing with reinforcement is you have to make it specific to a client because if I have a client who 
is so deeply uncomfortable with being praised, but my go-to for reinforcing them is to be like, amazing job. It's actually going to decrease their likelihood into engaging the behavior that we want. Um, it's going to end up being punishment, even though you think you're reinforcing. So you've got to ask the client. And again, that transparency is where it comes up in that relationship. Okay, all really great questions so far. Lots of diary card related questions. I like those. Okay. What other questions do you all have? I can speak about a few other topics, but I'd love to hear from you about what's making sense and what's not making sense so far. Okay, so how do you balance radical genuineness and boundaries? Ah, great question, Jean. So um, when we talk about dialectics and DVT, again, that means finding balance. And that means finding balance with everything that you're doing, right? All different strategies you're using, acceptance and change, but also all the skills that you're using with the clients. And so with radical genuineness and boundaries, it's really important. We emphasize this a lot in DVT that we honor our own personal limits as therapists. And the thing about limits that are different than boundaries, boundaries are like, um, I hate mayonnaise. This is not me. I actually like mayonnaise, but some people don't, right? very aversive for some people. And they hate mayonnaise in every situation all the time. That's a boundary. It never changes for them. But then there are some people, that same person might say, well, um, it depends on the situation for me. I like mayonnaise if it's hidden underneath something where I don't know it's there and it doesn't bother me. And that's a limit. Where a limit is it changes based on the situation, based on your own burnout, based on how obvious something is, etc. So there are things for me that I know are boundaries that I will never cross with clients, but then there are other things that are limits where it depends on my own burnout level, right? Um, whatever's going happening for me personally, where, like how, how frustrated I already am in a relationship with the client, how many times have I let something slide, my limits start to change based on the person sitting in front of me in that moment. And so the reason I say that all is to say, it's really important that we start to be mindful in every type of practice you're doing, even outside of DBT, of what are your personal limits as opposed to your personal boundaries? Because limits sometimes present themselves to us only because they've been crossed. And so part of our job as therapists is to say, okay, like here's my limit and I'm not going to cross it again with this client. It's important for me to be able to say no. And that's really important modeling in a therapeutic relationship to be able to say no to a client's request too, to kind of teach them that they get to have limits and so do you as a provider because you are a whole person as well as they are. So with the question about radical genuineness and boundaries, that is like how much I am radically genuine, how much I use self-disclosure is based on my personal limits. So there are some clients for whom, for example, I'm not going to share about um, my own sexuality, right? So for example, my gender identity or about uh, my sexual identity because it, it would cross a limit that would make me uncomfortable with that client. But there are other clients for whom I am absolutely going to tell them that out of the gate because it's clinically relevant to developing our relationship. Um, like for example, specifically if I, I work with a lot of LBGTQ clients, like it's important that I like align with them on that level to start. So it depends. I have to make that decision for myself based on how I'm feeling in that moment and what's happening. So that's a long answer to your question, but I am happy to speak more on that as well. Okay. So let's move just for a second. I'm going to pull up our PowerPoint one more time. And what I'm going to have you all do, actually, I won't pull up the PowerPoint, but I'm going to have you all do is what's called a um, comment waterfall. And what I'm going to have you all do in the comment section is write one thing that either you've gotten out of this training or that you want to start using with a client right away, like starting today or as soon as you see your next client. 
um, that has been spurred by the ideas of like the conversations that have happened today. And I want you to put that in the comments section as something kind of a pearl or nugget of wisdom that you want to take out of this and start using with your clients. I'll read a few of your examples. Be more comfortable with humor and self-disclosure. Yeah, diary card with somebody you've been struggling with, building a life worth living, behavior chain, diary card validation and change. Oh, you all are typing so fast here. Okay, reverent communication, using humor and out-of-the-box communication tailored to the client, self-disclosure. Yeah, you all have come up with some really great things already. Fantastic. Okay, great. So what I want you to do leaving our session today, since we're going to be joined again tomorrow, I'm so excited to see you all again, um, is to start trying these out. So you can try them out with a client. You can try them out looking at yourself in the mirror. You can try them out um, with a colleague or a friend, you know, on a Zoom call. You can try them out with your kids. I mean, to the limits that make sense in that context, of course. Um, but try this stuff out and see how it works. Because especially because a lot of these ideas are new, especially if you're thinking about the ones around communication, self-disclosure, is you have to give it a shot before you know if it's going to fit. So in this, the spirit of self-disclosure here, um, so when I started doing DBT about eight years ago, it was a very radical shift for me in the idea that I would share about myself with clients without like being in just really, really, really limited circumstances that I would do that. And it was uncomfortable for me for a long time. And now it feels like second nature and it's very easy for me to do it. And I know my own personal limits that I can kind of honor, but it may not feel that way for you at first. So Give this stuff a shot, see how it's going to work for you, see what you're comfortable with, um, and then we're going to report back on it again tomorrow. And just for kind of a sneak preview of tomorrow, we're going to be focusing pretty much our entire session on the four modules of DBT skills. And just as a heads up, there are, oh, I don't even know the total number. There are a lot of DBT skills. I'm going to be giving you kind of what I think are the, 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 be the, the best hits um, or the top hits of all of them just so that you have a few that are kind of very specific to DBT that don't necessarily overlap with other modalities to go out and use right away um, that are specific to or unique to DBT in some way. Okay, thanks everyone for joining me. Um, I really appreciate all of your time and energy, your participation in the chat, and I hope you have a wonderful evening and I'll see you back bright and early tomorrow at 9.30. Take good care. <laughs>